Let's prepare our hearts to worship. O God, to accept your word this day, silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and experience its power to change our lives. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today's reading is taken from New Testament, Luke Gospel, chapter 6, beginning with verse 41. The Gospel of the Lord. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Rena. I'll never come back to this town again. I just want to get out of here. You could smell the bacon in the diner. You could hear the sizzle on the griddle. There was a one pot of regular and one pot of decaf on top of the bunomatic, and the waitress was making very clear her thoughts about the town of Mountain Grove, Missouri, about two hours southwest of St. Louis. It was in September of 2011 that the New York Times ran an article about this small, tight-knit community. Gossip and rumors had always existed in the town, but they had mainly been centered around Dee's Place, the local diner right there on the town square, where people gathered every morning to talk about weather and the eggs and the bacon and politics and, of course, their neighbors. But by 2011, the article reported that more people in this hard scrabble town of 5,000 had shifted from sharing the latest news and rumors over eggs and coffee to instead doing it on a website named Topics. At the time, they would write and read startlingly negative posts. And unlike Facebook and unlike Dee's Place, these posts could be anonymous. And people weren't happy. Phoebe Best, a waitress, said that the site had provoked fights and caused several divorces she knew of. The diner's owner, Jim Devrell, called it a cesspool of character assassination. And hearing the conversation, Shane Brooks, a cook, wandered out of the kitchen, tense with anger because his wife, Jennifer, had been the target of one such post 
which described this mother of two as, among other things, quote, a methed-out, doped-out addict, not their term, with AIDS. And not a word of it was true. But Mr. and Mrs. James said the consequences were real enough, and the couple had resolved to move. One waitress said, I'll never come back to this town again. I just want to get out of here. It's a picture. A picture of the power of the tongue. A picture of the power of our words to shape people, to shape community, to breathe life and light or destruction and toxic cruelty into our communities and into our neighbors. We're going to look at a passage from the epistle of James where St. James, the brother of Jesus, warns the early Christians about the most dangerous part of the body, which is not a reproductive organ, but an organ of communication. So we're going to read James 2. This is the word of the Lord beginning in 2.26. We're going to read through chapter 3, verse 12. Follow along with me. For James writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words, As the body without the Spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Not many of you should presume to be teachers. That's a terrifying verse, by the way. (laughs) Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Why is that? Because we use our tongues all the time. He continues, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. It's the word of our God. And so, what do we see here? We see this warning about the most dangerous part of the body. He could, he's talking about the tongue, but he could just as easily be talking about the thumbs with which you type away on a smartphone. It's the communicating organs of the body. Just look at the imagery James uses here in verse 5, verse 6. What a great forest is set on fire. 
by a small spark. The tongue is a fire, a world of evil. It corrupts the whole body, the whole course of one's life on fire and, and, and itself set on fire by hell. You know, we, we don't often realize the, the destruction that our words can do to those around us. I've only been west of Missouri once in my life. I've been east to Ukraine, south to Nicaragua, north to Manhattan, no, north to Toronto, and west, with one exception, to Kansas City, Missouri, looking into Kansas, but it was dark, so I just saw lights. But, but on one occasion last fall, I did my first ever trip to California. There were three of us. One of, them had, one of us had a business trip, and the other two were tagging along just to see California. And so we got a rental house in Malibu, and I remember our first day there, we hadn't yet made it to the rental house, but uh, 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 while, while one of us was in business meetings, two of us were, were hanging out in downtown L.A., just walking around, and we kind of crested the hill up by the like Disney, uh, Frank Gehry design technicothica of a, a, a symphony hall. And I uh, went up to the top of that. And, and as we were there, uh, phones started vibrating. We're checking what's going on. Email from uh, Airbnb saying, uh, we've had to cancel your reservation. Malibu is under mandatory evacuation. And so we, so I don't know, didn't get to see Malibu. But we looked up at the mountain north of downtown LA. And off to the side in the distance, you just saw huge pillows of black uh, smoke, black clouds rising from the other side of the ridge. It was a forest fire. He says, what a, what a huge forest is set on fire by a tiny spark, the smallest spark. And he's saying, that's your tweet. We've got some pictures. Do we have those images? This is what it looked like in Malibu. This, God is saying, is what your blog post is doing. This is that snarky little one-liner that you thought might be funny. This is what you did when you called your spouse what you called your spouse the other day. This is that tweet you sent. This is that Facebook post. This is that comment section in the post-dispatch that you must never, ever, ever read under any circumstance. This is that article that you wrote where you didn't call and fact-check before you actually published it. This is that gossip that you shared about someone in the church. This is the email you sent, and you see the aftermath. It's your family, it's your church, it's your sisters and brothers in Christ, it's the people who are reading comments online, it's what happens after critical words have played out. Our words, its tiniest little spark can set the biggest forest on fire and leave such havoc and destruction. The tongue, James is saying, is the most dangerous part of the body. Sticks and stones can only break my bones, but your words can eviscerate me completely. Think about what Scripture tells us about communication. You know, I think sometimes we assume that God gave us the ability to communicate so that we can convey accurate information to one another, like sort of like a big computer processor where we're all like little, you know, bits on the board and we've got to get accurate information spreading around. Friends, that is not why God created the tongue. The Bible tells us why God created our ability to speak to one another. We know because Paul says that you must not say anything at all unless it is useful for doing what? Encouraging the brothers. Building them up. 
God didn't give you a tongue and thumbs and fingers in order to communicate accurate information. He gave you a tongue and fingers and, and, and thumbs in order to communicate love and life into one another in relationship, in community, to build up the body of Jesus and to build up your family and your children and your spouse and your friends and neighbors and coworkers with love and encouragement and, and truth. Yes, don't say false things. The Bible says that. That is for the purpose of love. And when you consider that most high and holy and noble calling that God gives you, the ability to speak words so that you can invest life into one another and love and relationship, you can see by contrast how particularly troubling it is when I use my own words to cut someone down to size. It is evil, we see. If we believed the gospel, friends, if I knew deep down inside that I am the most wicked man on earth, an enemy of God, hostile and at war with him, and that I understood that God himself was crushed on a cross in order to redeem me when I was his enemy, and I know that salvation is this free, overflowing, lovely, and beautiful, liberating gift to me, Friends, when that sinks in, it changes how you use your words. You know, if you really believed the gospel, you would be the least offended person on the planet because you would have no righteousness to be offended except the righteousness of Christ, which is the only thing we'd be bragging about. Yes, you would stand with those who are wronged. Yes, we would develop convictions on things where godly people differ. But when you believe you're so bad that Jesus had to die for you, you are giving up any moral high ground from which to judge anyone but yourself. Believing you're deeply flawed and deeply loved can inject a huge note of humility into our disagreements. You know, I'm a bit of a recovering legalist. I went through my cage stage Calvinist Pharisee mode and, and, and I totally killed a campus ministry because of it. Uh, and, 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 and so I, I'm, as a recovering legalist, I'm hesitant to make checklists. But I posted one checklist online about a year ago just so the internet could be on notice. You disagree with something you read, you're kind of offended by it. You realize you shouldn't be offended because, you know, you're, you're a sinner saved by grace, but, but why not rather be wronged? Why you got to make an issue of it? The very fact, 1 Corinthians 6, 7, that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Second point, listen. If you're going to engage in disagreement with somebody, listen and make sure that you are able to communicate their perspective better than they can communicate it themselves. Perfect their arguments for them. What I'm hearing you say is that you believe dot, 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 and therefore, logically, you conclude that such and such. See, that's what the Bible says in James 1 that we looked at last week. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak slow to become angry. And when you have to disagree, try whispering to them very, very softly and slowly like you're talking to a newborn because the Bible says it is a gentle word that turns away wrath. A harsh word only stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.1 And make your goal in engaging, not winning an argument. It's not about you. Your pride is not on display. Only our humility as objects of God's mercy. Make your goal peace, shalom, 
Uh, Romans 12, Paul writes, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. And if possible, insofar as it depends on you, live at peace. With whom? With everyone. And when you are wronged, how does the Bible tell you to communicate? Jesus says it. He says it in Matthew's gospel recorded in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault just between the two of you. Meaning you don't respond to that snarky comment online by adding a snarky comment online. You, you pick up the phone. You go to them, just the two of you, because you are obligated morally to protect the reputation even of your enemy by speaking to them in private first and only escalating it by bringing others in later. Because our words, our tongues are the most powerful part of our body and capable of doing the most damage. And you show them not how much you hate them, you show them how, how, how he's wrong, show him his actual fault. But just the two of you in private, in person. And embrace your opponent. Don't avoid them. Don't argue with them. Romans 14. As for one who is weak in faith, welcome him. That's an embrace. But don't do it, he says, to quarrel over words or opinions. Don't argue. Embrace. And stick to the issue without personal attack or assuming evil motives. James 4, we'll look at in a few weeks. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And then when you come down to the final last-minute checklist, you've got the email written, you're getting ready to hit send. Before you hit send, you've got one last checklist. Is this email patient, kind, not envious, not boasting, not arrogant, not rude, not insisting on my own way, not irritable. <laughs> Erase, rewrite. Keeping no record of wrongs. Oh. Rejoicing with the truth, bearing all things, and love always trusts. In other words, if you are communicating love, you can hit send. If you're not communicating love, don't send it. Believe the gospel for your enemy. Don't try to control them. You know, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters, Romans 14, because God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were wrong, Jesus died for us. Because if communication's purpose is to communicate love and life into one another, uh, and, and to create a community of love and life in the church, then, then that makes its misuse so damaging. It is a fire that is consuming everything in its midst because it's, it's the most dangerous part of our body. And this has profound implications, friends. Um, you know, I remember uh, reading uh, Ramona Kramer Tucker was talking about an incident where she was sharing uh, uh, with, with a friend of hers who had gone through a really awful divorce and, uh, and as she was sharing it, there was a, another common friend that, that had confided in private that her own marriage was on the rocks. And, and so she shared it with this other friend who didn't know anything about it, uh, just to get her to pray about it. And as soon as she did it, she regretted it. And uh, she talks about how she then went home and, and, and after really struggling with her conscience, she had to pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, I shouldn't have had that conversation with you. And she then had to go to the, the friend she gossiped about. Um, you know, not protecting, but, but exposing uh, her own struggle and, and ask her forgiveness. And, and she promised, I'll, I'll never, ever do it again. I promise. And, and her friend Maris just stared her in the eyes and said, honey, don't, don't promise something that you don't know you can deliver. 
if you broke my trust once, you've probably done it before, you'll probably do it again, um, I'm going to love you, but it's going to take a long time to rebuild that kind of trust. I remember at last year's General Assembly down in Hotlanta, um, Joe Novitson shared a story of his days at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And, uh, and the story he gave, it was there was a, a theological debate happening where one of the faculty, this was back in the day at Westminster Seminary, had, had published some things that were of questionable orthodoxy. They were definitely stretching some bounds. They weren't real sure about it. And he, he sat and watched a faculty meeting as the faculty examined this professor. And they ripped him to shreds, raising their voice, yelling, making accusations, taking what he's saying out of context, twisting it, making it sound so much worse. And, and Joe talked about how as a young seminary student, he had always experienced his denomination, our denomination, as a context of grace and charity. And this seemed so different. It was his first picture of sort of the underbelly of our reformed circles, uh, of how ugly and judgmental and self-righteous and, and frankly just unkind and uncompassionate we have a tendency to become, particularly when it's theological disagreement. And later that night, he and some friends went to Denny's. And as he sat down at Denny's, he was facing the rest of the restaurant. He could see all the way in the far back of the restaurant at the other side, this professor was sitting at a booth, or they just stood up uh, from a booth. And he was there with Ed Clowney, who was the president of Westminster Seminary. And the man was weeping. And Ed Clowney had his arms around him and was weeping with him. And Joe Novitson said this, of these two vignettes that same day, he said, I have no idea what President Clowney was speaking or saying to this professor. But of those two situations, I know which one looked like my Lord. Why is it so hard to control the tongue? It's hard to control the tongue because we say the things that flow out of our hearts what we read in verse 12. My brothers, uh, he gives three illustrations. Can a fig tree bear olives? Can a grapevine bear figs? Can a salt spring produce fresh water? Uh, you know, I remember one, one pastor uh, would, whenever he preached this passage, he'd take a big clear jug of water and he'd pour it right in the middle of the church in front of everybody. And he'd ask everybody, now, now what's that on the floor? Well, that's water. Okay, well, well why is there not red Kool-Aid on the floor? And they kind of look confused and say, um, because you didn't bring out a container filled with red Kool-Aid. And that was his point. Uh, if ugliness is coming out in your tweets, in your Facebook comments, in your, your arguments with your spouse, it's because of ugliness inside. We've got a problem inside of us that we cannot fix. And that's why the words come out. That's why olive trees bear olives, not figs. Figs, fig tree bears olives, not yeah doesn't bear olives. Grapevine, what does it create? It creates grapes, not figs. And a salt spring isn't going to give you fresh water. It's going to give you salty water. And uh, friends, our water can be pretty freaking salty. Um, it's making the same point. It's the same point that Jesus made when he said what, what Rena read earlier, for out of the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. I think of how many people I have hurt, unintentionally or intentionally, because of something I said. The snarky one-liners, uh, uh, you know, I've got, I've got a large vocabulary that is attached to a fairly fast processor, of which I'm not proud of it. I have 
nothing to do with it. Uh, but uh, that's a very dangerous combination because that means I can string together hurtful words in very creative ways and I can do it incredibly quickly. I mean, before I was a Christian, I was known as the guy who could cuss the wallpaper off a wall. You know, it, no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Ugliness is inside of me. Why is that? I think a big part of it is because we're constantly trying to prove ourselves. We're constantly trying to justify ourselves. We're constantly trying to to validate ourselves. And we use our words because they're so powerful in order to validate ourselves. Uh, for, For some, that may mean running over somebody with your words because they're in your way and you're trying to accomplish something so that you can be a valid, significant person, who somebody who accomplishes great things. And so you run over people with your words, or it can look like, uh, you know, if you're a people pleaser and you think your rescue, your significance, your salvation is going to come because everybody loves you and thinks you're wonderful, uh, you know, it's going to be way more subtle, but you're not going to be loving people with your words. You're going to be using people with your words to get them to make you feel the way you need to feel in order to feel valid. Uh, but in both cases, it's this drive to validate myself, to make myself significant, whether it's be- because I'm being self-centered in a passive-aggressive way or self-centered in a just plain old aggressive way or self-centered in a people-pleaser kind of way. They're all basically the same internal software running me, driving me to perform enough to get what I need in order to be loved or valid. Um, There was an article quite a while back in Salon.com in which Lauren Frey Daisley uh, wrote about her her month of no snark. Snark, you know, is the it's combination of snide remark, uh, sarcastic comments. She says this. She says, it started when my husband, baby, and I drove away from a visit with my aunt who had stage four breast cancer. And I thought back on the 30-some years I had known this beloved aunt, and I had never once in all that time heard her say anything unkind, not just to me or to someone else, but I had never even heard her say anything unkind about someone, even about someone with whom she disagreed. Not even, she says, in the subtext of her words. That is one heck, or in this case, heaven of a legacy. And so I began to wonder, how could holding my tongue, or at least changing what came off of it, alter my relationships? And that's when she began her month-long campaign to practice kindness in her speech. And Daisley discovered that it's not easy to live without snark. She explained it this way, and it's going to sound familiar. It is so much cooler to be more sarcastic. It says that I'm above this scene. I'm above other people even. Do you hear that drive to validate myself, that drive to save myself, that drive to to perform and become one of the good people, one of the significant people, one of the really clever, witty, intelligent people who's so above the fray? The snarky comments are flowing from a place in our soul that's trying to rescue ourselves, to make me someone, one of the clever people. And it's hard to control the tongue because we have this internal drive to validate ourselves, this self-rescuing heart from which our words overflow. Uh, Jesus says how we speak to and about other people is, is one of the most profound diagnostics on your soul in showing you where you really are with God as opposed to where you like to profess that you are. Jesus said it in Matthew 12, I tell you, Everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, 
and by your words you will be condemned. It's a diagnostic. Uh, It can be so hard to control the tongue because they flow out of our heart and our hearts are constantly trying to rescue ourselves to make ourselves significant and valid and meaningful and worthy. And Jesus says, it's all going to come out in the wash. And so how do we get off this treadmill of self-validation? How do we become free to be able to use our words to love one another and speak life into one another instead of setting the forest on fire? How's it possible? It's possible because the gospel gives the validation that we long for. The gospel gets us off the treadmill of having to validate ourselves, make ourselves significant, make me one of the good people, make me one of... It gets, it gets you off your need to be right, clever, smart, or better. And it's the backdrop for everything James writes. He, he talks about being the family of God now. Did you notice the repetition in verse 1? My brothers. In verse 10, my brothers. In verse 12, my brothers. The gospel is those of us who were alienated from God have been brought into the family of God where God, as a matter of basic family loyalty, is obligated to fight our battle against sin, to defend us from our enemies, and to provide for us, including paying down all of our debts. It's a family that gives us meaning. It's that family of God that gives us the validation that enables us to get off the performance treadmill so that we can speak words of love and life into one another. To have siblings, Father. To have brothers. You say, Greg, that's kind of sexist that he's calling us brothers. Why doesn't he call us brothers and sisters? Well, let me explain that very quickly. In the ancient world, women did, a sister did not have the inheritance right of a brother. And so Paul is speaking to a mixed crowd And he's calling the women brothers because he's saying that you have the exact same inheritance right as a son because you are a child of the Most High God and in God he is no respecter of persons. So he's elevating, not lowering in this. Don't hear it through a 21st century grid. But to have brothers, to have siblings. I read an account recently about two co-workers. Um, They worked together every day at a furniture delivery company and and they they didn't know. Uh, Gary would lift one end of the couch, Randy would get the other. People always said they looked so much alike and they always chalked it up to coincidence. But Randy had been researching his family history and he knew he uh, was an adopted son and a new law in Maine at that point had allowed him to finally see his birth certificate. And so he learned that both of his parents had died but they had another son who was born on June 10th of 1974. And then on a furniture delivery run, it happened because another customer commented on how much Randy looked like Gary. Randy started nonchalantly asking his best friend Gary some more personal questions like, when's your birthday? June 10th, 1974. As soon as he said it, he knew Gary was his brother. Here, they had grown up in neighboring towns, attended rival schools. They were only a year apart in age. They had worked together for a decade and never knew about each other. It was a shock. Gary says, it was phenomenal. I still can't wrap my hand, head around it. Uh, a coworker, Greg, said, there's nothing like family, especially when you don't have one, and now they've both got a family. But that's not all. After their story appeared in the local newspaper, a teary-eyed woman showed up at their workplace, clutching her own birth certificate, and they realized she was their half-sister, born five or six years before them. Uh, after all these years, she said in an interview, here I am. 41 years old, and I finally found my brothers. 
Friends, when you walk through the door of this church this morning, you are walking into a room filled with the sisters and brothers you never knew you had. God has made us family with the same father, with a striking family resemblance, a deep, inexplicable bond. And finally, we can start being the family that we never knew we had. And it changes everything. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Uh, How you view a brother is different from how you view a stranger. Um, Max Licato writes about a big muscle-bound man named Daniel who was swindled by his own brother, and it was pretty, pretty low-down, nasty deal. And uh, he vowed if he ever saw his brother again, he would break his neck. And a few months later, Daniel became a Christian, and uh, even so, he could not, he just couldn't forgive his brother. And one day, the encounter happened. It was in New York, big, busy avenue. He saw his brother across the street. He writes this. He says, I saw him, and he didn't see me. And I felt my fists clench, and my face get hot. And my initial impulse was to grab him around the throat and choke the life out of him. But as I looked into his face, my anger began to melt Because I saw him, I saw the image of my father. I saw my father's eyes. I saw my father's look. I saw my father's expression. And as I saw my father in his face, my enemy once again became my brother. And the brother found himself wrapped in those big arms, but in a hug, not a, a throttle. And the two of them stood in the middle of a river of people and they wept. His words bear repeating, when I saw the image of my father in his face, my enemy became my brother, friends. We're family, children of the same father, sisters and brothers. That means we have a father, a Lord and father. Verse 9, did you notice the possessive? When James doesn't call God our father, God a father, he calls him our Lord and Father. That means possessive. That means He belongs to us as much as we belong to Him because it's a covenant union between God and His His people. And in the ancient world, friends, to be adopted into a family like we have been adopted in the family of God meant some pretty significant things. Often, it would be an elderly, you know, wealthy patrician in the Roman world who would see himself approaching his, his sunset years of his life and he would look and see that he has no one to inherit his possessions or his title. And so he would often select a favorite, uh, a favorite slave, a young man, and he would give that slave uh, 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 manumission. He'd, 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 remit, he'd give him his freedom and then adopt him as a son. And in doing so, that son, that former slave, would receive all of his father's name and his standing and his wealth and his land and his property and his business and his father's patronage network and eventually his father's seat in the Senate. And yet what would also happen is the father would then be responsible and take on all of the debts and liabilities of the newfound son so that then all of those debts and liabilities would be transferred to the father. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, Kellen was out of town, and uh, so, so Sam was, um, you know, a uh, uh, single dad and worship leader. And, uh, and I remember sitting in that front pew with Sam and looking over, and, and Sam was, was, was holding uh, um, um, Asher in his, in his arms and looking up singing, you know, singing his heart out like he always does on Sunday morning. And I just stood, I watched as Asher just sat there just completely at peace in Sam's big, strong arms. Uh, and, and Sam was not going to drop him. Uh, you know, he was, Asher was unconcerned because he was safe 
in the strong arms of his father, his dad, who loves him. And do you understand when God stands up and names you as, as, as his son, as a brother of Jesus and a brother in God's family, when he says, I am your dad, uh, that's possession. Having a dad, your dad. You know, I don't know what all some of you are going through right now. I don't know what challenges you're facing, what threats you're under, what questions you have, what anxieties are troubling your soul. But I can tell you, if you have Jesus, friends, you are not alone. You have a father, and your father sees you right now. He sees you, and you are secure in his strong arms because he loves you, and he is not going to let go of you. He is not going to drop you. You are at peace in his arms. And that change of family, that change of family changes everything because James remembers what it cost God to welcome us into his family. By making us his family, God took him upon himself all of your debts and all of your liabilities. God is not a bad father. First Timothy 5.8, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Friends, do you really think God your father is worse than an unbeliever? Do you really think God the father does not provide for his relatives? There was a mutual obligation and God had an obligation to pay down your debts and to to cover your liabilities. And he did that in the face of Jesus Christ, who took your liabilities and took your debts and took them all the way to the cross and paid them, and he paid them in full. Your sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and you bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, remember who James grew up with. He grew up with an older brother named Jesus. And Jesus is the one who's done all of that and more. I've got one more photo here. This is a photo of George. George Tyson of Overston, Cumbria, United Kingdom. George, the thing you need to know about George is he's a dad. And his son Gary um, suffered traumatic brain injury when he was just 18 months old on account of a, a fall, uh, leaving him with some significant learning disabilities. But at age 32, his son Gary uh, would always be seen around his, at his dad's side. They would pace through town, uh, always together on many of their missions. Uh, the two, George and his son Gary, were enjoying one of their walks through the countryside along the coastal road when George, at the very last second, spotted a white car speeding around the corner toward his son. And he didn't even have a split second, but in a split second, he lunged in front of that car and pushed his son, Gary, to safety and saved his life. And yet he did so at the cost of his own life because George, as a dad, took the full brunt of the power of that speeding vehicle in his son's place, died so that his son, his son could live. Friends, that's what God did in the person of Jesus for you. He did it because he was not willing that any of you should perish. But as his elect, as his family, as the, as the apple of his eye, he chose to give up the very, very life that he had in order to rescue you from certain death so that you may now have the security of one who is loved by God, freed by God, and enabled by God to love your brothers with your words. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven,
We give you thanks for your mercy, your compassion, your love, and your grace. We consecrate to you, Lord, the elements on this table that they might be the medicine of immortality as we feast upon Christ by faith, that you might change the heart level, that we might overflow in love toward our sisters and our brothers and our neighbors and especially, Lord, our enemies. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Friends, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Then lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. It is good and right in our bounden duty at all times to give thanks and praise to you, our God and Father, and your Son, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks now, even as we come to this table, to break of this bread and to drink of this cup. We give you thanks through Christ our Lord. Amen.